That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by Sup China. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the week's news. An outspoken writer and former Chinese official who has been an Australian citizen for nearly 20 years has been detained in Beijing for more than a week. Chinese authorities say that Yang Hengjun is being held on suspicion of endangering China's national security. China detained two Canadians last month on similar charges. Growth in China's personal consumption spending bounced back last year as authorities stepped up efforts to encourage consumers to open their wallets. Chinese spent an average of $3,000 last year on a basket of goods and services that included health care, accommodation and clothing. The amount was about $300 higher than in 2017. The top three categories consumers spent the most cash on were food, cigarettes and alcohol, and accommodation. And urban residents spent more than double the amount rural residents did, though the gap between the two narrowed. Eight regions in China, including Beijing, are predicting slower economic growth this year in the latest sign of a worsening economic outlook for the world's second largest economy. The downbeat forecasts come as China's growth has lost steam amid a debt control campaign, a trade war with the United States, and a weak business sentiment nationwide. The country's GDP grew 6.6% last year, the slowest annual expansion since 1990. One of the steepest decline predictions came from the Xinjiang region. It is now forecasting growth of around 5.5% this year, down from around 7% for 2018. Wonder why that could be. Of the eight regions predicting slowdowns, Tianjin set the lowest target for this year. The government in the northern port city bordering Beijing forecast its economy will grow around 4.5% this year. Two Chinese farms housing tens of thousands of pigs have been blamed for mismanaging and attempting to conceal African swine fever cases. The farms, located in northeast China's Heilongjiang province and east China's Jiangsu province, failed to report African swine fever cases promptly and intentionally broke rules aimed at controlling the spread of the disease, China's Ministry of Agriculture said. The report comes amid a nationwide crisis that has seen nearly a million pigs culled in efforts to stop the spread of swine fever. The disease has now been reported in dozens of provinces. African swine fever is deadly for pigs, but is not known to affect humans. 
Beijing has named 10 of its largest state-owned firms world-class enterprises, a designation that means the government will likely focus resources to make them more competitive at home and abroad. The 10 include familiar names like oil giant PetroChina and State Grid of China, operator of China's national electric grid, as well as China Mobile, the world's largest mobile carrier with nearly a billion subscribers. It also includes less familiar names like train-making giant CRRC and China Three Gorges, operator of the massive Three Gorges Dam on the Yangtze River. SOEs, a legacy of China's socialist past, are important to Beijing beyond the money they earn. Their taxes are a significant source of government revenue, and they advance China's industrial policy goals by channeling capital toward key sectors. China's leading shared bike company is getting a new name. Internet giant Meituan Dianping is rebranding Mobike, the startup it bought for nearly three billion U.S. dollars in April. The bike-sharing service will be renamed Meituan Bike, and it will be incorporated into Meituan's own suite of location-based services, which include ride-hailing and futuristic unmanned delivery projects. Employees now working in Mobike's Beijing offices will move to Meituan's Beijing headquarters by the end of February. China has emerged as a leader in a new generation of dockless shared bike services that use GPS to let users locate, unlock, ride, and then park loaner bikes for small fees using a smartphone app. But like many such new industries in China, the sector quickly attracted a lot of new players. Mobike and chief rival Ofo were among the earliest arrivals and emerged as the two dominant operators. Lately, the sector has been haunted by liquidity problems, with most players taking on big losses amid rampant price wars and bike theft. Mobike found a savior in Meituan, while Ofo has stayed independent and found itself in an even more dire cash-bleeding situation, as users clamor for refunds and the company dismisses staff. Alibaba's film unit has signed a deal with one of China's leading independent studios, the latest in a long string of high-profile tie-ups as it tries to claw its way back to profitability. The deal will see Alibaba Pictures team up with Huayi Brothers to make movies, TV shows, and other entertainment products in which Huayi plays the decisive and leading role. The company said. Alibaba Pictures has struggled in recent years and sought help by forming a number of major strategic partnerships, mostly co-production deals with other big names. Those include a stake in Steven Spielberg's Amblin Partners and an investment in Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Last week, Alibaba Pictures announced its purchase of a stake in the production house of celebrity novelist, blogger, and high school dropout Han Han. What does the average Chinese person do every day? According to a new study, he or she sleeps for nine and a half hours, watches TV for 100 minutes, eats and drinks for 104 minutes, and tends to personal hygiene for 50 minutes. The study, in which the National Bureau of Statistics surveyed 20,000 households, reveals that daily routines vary significantly across age groups, gender, and location. For instance, women spend more than double the amount of time men do each day on unpaid labor, which includes household chores, taking care of family members, and shopping for goods and services. But men spend 100 more minutes a day on paid labor. So, while women do slightly more work, they are paid for less of their time. Another big divide is in internet usage. Urban residents reported spending an average of 200 minutes each day online, while rural residents spent only 100 minutes on similar activities.
Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Tyson Global's reporters and editors for a deeper dive into some of the week's news. First up this week is Doug Young, managing editor of Tyson Global. Doug, we were talking this week about a major landmark in China's economic development. What's this latest milestone? The U.S. is the leader in a lot of things these days, you know, all sorts of economic indicators and, and other big benchmarks. And China sort of is one by one knocking off a lot of these things as, as it develops. And the, this latest one is, is a pretty big one. It's, it's retail. China has forecast to pass the U.S. this year to officially become the world's largest retail market. And um, I just jotted down a few of the numbers to give people an idea here. But uh, China is basically supposed to grow 7.5% this year to $5.6 trillion this year in retail sales. So we're talking very big numbers here. And if you look at the U.S., the U.S. is a much more mature market. They're only supposed to grow about less than half that rate, about 3.3% to $5.5 trillion. What is interesting here is uh, you do look at China from a population standpoint. China has about four times the population of the U.S., so that means that theoretically, they only need to be buying a quarter as much, and they would be equaling all the retail sales of the U.S., uh, but then you also have to look at China people's buying power, uh, you know, how much are they earning? And average Chinese income is now about one-sixth of that of the U.S. So basically, a sixth of the income, four times more population, well, that means that Chinese are probably spending a little more as a percentage of their income on retail. And, and you know, Chinese are shaping up to be pretty good consumers, I guess, is what this all comes down to. So if not this year, then very soon, China is going to surpass the U.S. in terms of total retail. Uh, what are some of the particular or interesting features of the Chinese retail landscape? The interesting story with China is really e-commerce. I mean, uh, China's given us Alibaba, which is, you know, gone from zero to one of the world's most valuable companies. And, and e-commerce has exploded. Uh, if you look at the figures right now, more than a third of China's retail sales all come from e-commerce. If you look at a market like the U.S., it's only about 11%. So you can see, you know, Chinese are really, really into buying stuff online. That's a big thing that's driving it. Um, and then you also, the, with China, you, have, you do have to look at the traditional retailing landscape. You really do not have a lot of well-established Chinese retail brands. I, you know, the big ones here in China are mostly foreign brands. You have a, a few like Sooning and basically the fact that you can't think of many is sort of testament to the fact that, you know, before the 1990s, China didn't have a traditional retail landscape. It was all these drab government stores with surly workers and no selection and stuff. So there really wasn't any sort of a retail culture before that. And I think that's one of the reasons why e-commerce has been able to make such a big inroad so quickly because there was no traditional retailing landscape that e-commerce had to battle with. Whereas in the U.S., you do have much more mature retail landscape. You have a lot of famous retailers and, and so forth. Well, Doug, thanks a lot. Great talking to you and uh, looking forward to talking to you after the Chinese New Year. Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. Next up is Charlotte Yang, reported with Caixin Global. So, Charlotte, I'm a big fan of the whole zombie genre from the old George Romero movies to 28 Days Later, Shaun of the Dead, and The Walking Dead, all of those. Uh, so when I saw this piece on how Chinese zombies are so hard to kill, my interest was naturally piqued. Uh, but I guess it's actually about Chinese zombie companies or zombie firms. Uh, so what's up with these Chinese zombie firms? 
Zombie firms in Chinese are called Jiang Shi Qi, which is a company that have been incurring losses persistently for a few years in a row, but they have managed to survive through like government subsidies and cheap bank loans. So, so how do these zombie firms fit into the Chinese economy more broadly?、Uh, is this a new phenomenon, or have they been around for decades? And is it getting better or worse? And and, and I guess I want to ask: Is this problem a particular problem for China? Zombie firms are not like a China-only phenomenon, which actually they gained popularity. The term during Japan's last decade of economic stagnation in the 1990s, but in China it has become one of the headaches of officials because zombie firms usually tend to be state-owned enterprises and big state-owned enterprises, and in the sectors that has long problems of overcapacity, for example, steel, coal, cement, and glass. Um, the actual scope of zombie firms in China is actually in the dark because the data on this is not very transparent. So, money losing companies feeding on the flesh of the healthy. I, I can see why this would be a problem, but、uh, can you maybe explain a little more clearly what the big problems that they generate for the Chinese economy are? One big problem with zombies is that they suck up credit that could have gone to more productive companies. They also added to corporate debts, which is a big problems of China has, and also it adds up to the overcapacity of sectors that I've talked about, which、um, is at the focus of China's supply side structural reform that they want to cut overcapacity. Policymakers have been grappling with this for a while. So,、uh, what's going on right now in the policy sphere? In December 2018, um, 11 heavyweight government agencies have published this document saying that they're setting a clear deadline that by 2020 they want all zombie firms in the country to be cleaned up. But in the past, such zombie hunting has been very difficult because, for one thing, local officials they like to keep these zombies alive because even if they're unproductive, they contribute to GDP figures, which is、um, something their political performance is evaluated on. And also, these zombies, if they go bankrupt,、um, mass layoffs will follow suit, and potentially social instability, which is something that the Communist Party has been very, very sensitive towards. Another thing is that a research paper by the central bank found out that banks, even though they know that these companies will not be able to pay back, they've chose to continue to extend the credit so as they can avoid exposing the extent of their own bad loans. Well, thanks for talking to us, Charlotte, and maybe there will be a sequel to this zombie film. Thank you so much, Kaiser. You're very welcome. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown. With stories from the staff of Caixin Global, thanks of course to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global, and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Sinica Network, and be sure to follow the news from China every day at Sub China. Subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.